Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. Lover's Lament Crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Hard to believe, but it's been 30 years since Prince wowed us with angst-filled lyrics and beautiful pop melodies on Purple Rain. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We're joined by Revolution members Wendy and Lisa for a classic album dissection of Purple Rain. Plus, we review a new album by the ambitious metal band Mastodon. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're going to be talking about Prince's epic Purple Rain later on. Greg, you know I lived in Minneapolis. I made the Prince tour, saw the graffiti bridge. But you have interviewed the man in person four times. You guys are practically bros. (laughs) You know, the first three times, it it was a little stiff and formal. The fourth time, uh, that wall broke down for whatever reason. This was a few years ago. And he uh, let me sit in on an actual rehearsal of his band as he was going on this big national tour. And it was like a combination of James Brown with that drill sergeant mentality like every mistake was pointed out. And he had a twinkle in his eye when he would say some of these things, and he was cracking people up. Of course, they were on his payroll, so they were paid to laugh at his jokes. Well, we'll get some more insights on the purple wonder later on from Wendy and Lisa, but first, some music news. Yes, Jim, one of the most talked about news stories of the week was uh, Dolly Parton's performance at the Glastonbury Music Festival in England. Kind of an unlikely headliner there, but she drew the biggest TV audience for the BBC. But a lot of uh, friends and fans of, of Dolly's who viewed the performance were disappointed because they thought it look, looked and sounded completely canned. Greg, I've been fascinated with another story about a Brit obsessed with America. Phil Collins is the world's largest collector of Alamo memorabilia, artifacts from that battle in Texas, 1836, and he has now donated it to the Daughters of the Texas Revolution, who are going to have to build an annex on to the Alamo just to house all that stuff. We have one more news story, though. On a sadder note, we have to pay homage to the late Bobby Womack. That is across 110th Street uh, by the great Bobby Womack, uh, who died a few days ago at the age of 70. Across 110th Street, the centerpiece of uh, Tarantino's uh, 1997 movie, Jackie Brown, the soundtrack for that movie anyway, and also a big hit in the 70s for Bobby Womack, a guy who spanned generations and decades with his music. With the Valentinos, a group out of Cleveland signed by Sam Cooke. He wrote a song called It's All Over Now. A few weeks later, the Rolling Stones liked it so much that they covered it, (laughs) and it became their first number one hit in America. So Bobby Womack wrote the Stones' first number one single. He went on to work with people like Janis Joplin, Aretha Franklin, The Box Tops, much in demand as a triple threat songwriter, session guitarist and singer in the 60s and then went on to forge his own solo career in the 70s. His solo albums in the 70s 
much beloved by R&B collectors. Huge hits during that era on the R&B charts. That's the way I feel about you. Woman's Gotta Have It. Looking for a Love. Two great albums in the early 80s, well titled The Poet and The Poet Too. That's the way he was perceived in the African-American community. He was singing about their lives in a poetic way like no one else. And then he went away for a few decades, had troubles with his health and with drug addiction until Damon Albarn of uh, Blur and Gorillaz hooked up with him. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago on June 12th, his 28th and final studio album came out, The Best is Yet to Come. I think the cast of characters contributing with him on that record is testament to his influence. Tina Marie, Snoop Dogg, (laughs) Stevie Wonder, Rod Stewart, and Damon Albarn. We're going to play a track from that Albarn record that came out in 2012, Bravest Man in the Universe. Albarn invested a considerable amount of his own money and put heart and soul into making a record with his hero. It's called Love is Gonna Lift You Up by Bobby Womack on Sound Opinions. Where there's a heartbeat There's a dream inside A new day Make it come Love is Going to Lift You Up from Bobby Womack on Sound Opinions in tribute to Womack's death at the age of 70. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that, of course, is Purple Rain, the iconic title track from Prince's sixth album, released 30 years ago in July of 1984. Do you remember where you were when this album and film came out? I mean, I do. (laughs) This anniversary gives us the perfect reason to revisit our classic album dissection. Figure out why it works, why it's a masterpiece, and why all these years later, people are still listening to it and still talking about it. Purple Rain was the record that, more than any other release in Prince's career, made him a superstar, a worldwide phenomenon. No small feat, considering that in 1982, he had released 1999, an album that established the sound of Minneapolis. He had come out of Minneapolis as an artist associated with R&B. He was a guy who posed in women's lingerie (laughs) on his third album cover, Dirty Mind, in 1980, and, and got a lot of critical acclaim. But it wasn't really until those twin blockbusters, 1999 and Little Red Corvette in 1982, that he became uh, a pop star. Purple Rain took it a step above. Uh, Not only was there a movie associated with the making of this record, there was this tremendous music, 13 million copies sold. At the height of the blockbuster era, Jim, Springsteen, 
Michael Jackson, artists selling tens of millions of albums. Prince was right there with them and in many ways was the leading edge of the cutting edge when it came to the mainstream pop stars of that era. And I'm especially thinking of uh, his guitar playing on this record. I think it was a real revelation to people who saw him as this keyboard-heavy R&B musician prior to this. You know, his guitar playing, the combination of Hendrix and Santana, Ernie Isley, Eddie Hazel of Parliament Funkadelic, he was bringing in all these predecessors and at the same time being a complete original with it. And that guitar was all over this record. We've heard again and again and again uh, Thriller being credited with the album that broke down racial boundaries for this era and and genre divides mixing you know funk and soul and R&B and pop and, and rock yeah that was true obviously and it outsold Prince yet Purple Rain's the album I would take to a desert island Prince had better taste the <laughs> rock he adopted was cooler rock he really understood the new wave the cutting edge of rock and roll in that era the funk he liked was dirtier funk I mean he was coming from Clinton you know there's a couple of trademarks with Prince he was making phenomenal use of the Lynn drum machine mm-hmm. one of the earliest drum machines at that time is a big part of his sound. There are certain synthesizer uh, patches, the earliest digital synthesizers, that are a big part of his sound. But when you think 80s music, so much of it is dated and it is hamstrung by the technology. I think that the sounds he crafted on Purple Rain, which all have a sort of psychedelic sheen, Mm -hmm. whether it's a pop song, a rock song, or a funk song, they all are kind of filtered through this Beatles uh, psychedelic notion, which would really flourish in the next two albums he made. That's one thing, and also there's just a timelessness. He had a certain beat and a groove that that was his and his alone, and it hasn't aged a day. I would posit that a big part of the success is the fact that he, probably for the only time in his long career, had a band that he was letting in and actually incorporating in the songwriting and in the recording. This was a one-man band previously up to this point who made the records on his own in his home studio, had a wonderful touring band, but when it came to writing the songs and recording them, he didn't let other people in. Now he had a phenomenal group. Some musicians, notably the keyboardist Matt Fink, Dr. Fink, who'd been with him for a long time, and he really trusted... And two newcomers who were very notable. Lisa Coleman initially came on board with keyboards to replace Gail Chapman, who'd been the touring keyboardist. wasn't long after that that her significant other, Wendy Melvoin, was brought on to replace Des Dickerson on guitar. I think they gave him that moment in Wizard of Oz, you know, where it goes from black and white to Technicolor. (laughs) That's what Wendy and Lisa brought to Prince and the Revolution on Purple Rain. Wendy and Lisa have continued to record as a duo in Los Angeles since leaving Prince in the late 80s, releasing a string of albums together. In addition, they've been doing a lot of soundtrack work for TV shows, including Heroes and Nurse Jackie, for which they won an Emmy. We're very pleased to have Wendy and Lisa with us now to talk about their career with Prince and the making of the Purple Rain album. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. And Wendy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to have you both here. Let's start with how you guys hooked up with Prince. Lisa, you were first on board, coming on to play keyboards in the band after Prince's touring keyboardist left. Yes. Gail Chapman was the original girl in the band. And um, due to her religious beliefs, it it became very difficult for her to continue with Prince and Mm. the direction that he wanted to take. 
Um, but me being the demon that I am, I <laughs> jumped right in with great pleasure. <laughs> max, maximum insalubrious intentions. I uh, No, I had no idea what I was getting into, actually. I thought I was going to be a, a piano player. But yeah, I, I joined on at Dirty Mind. I actually started in the recording process uh, with Dirty Mind before we even played any gigs or anything like that. Mm. He was working on head, of course, so that was my first, (laughs) (laughs) my very first vocal. So let me get this straight. Prince, you joined Prince's band. He wants you to wear lingerie on stage and he's asking you to record a song called Head. And yeah. what was your reaction to And I'm to like, all this? okay. Oh my God, I thought it was. Oh, so wait till I get to tell my story. <laughs> Go. I thought of it more in terms of a really punk rock kind of situation, or that's where I took it for myself to get through <laughs> to survive, because I wasn't really a girly girl at all. But uh, yeah, I, I got into it because of. Well, I liked the music. I liked his groove factor and I liked his rude boy attitude when you got to go to Minneapolis and see how these guys actually lived I mean it it had to become clear that there was there was the big act on stage and then there were the real people right you would think because anybody who who later built a studio in Chanhassen see having lived in Minneapolis you go out there I mean it's in the cornfield yeah how cool and how alien and wild are you you know you're out and you know the big excitement in Chaska was to go to the 7-Eleven for a Slurpee my philosophy about Prince and, and having Paisley Park out in the cornfields is that's he's the king. He's the king of Minneapolis. <laughs> that's part of his backyard. That was part of the culture um, conflict between us because growing up in Hollywood where everybody was just a freak and androgynous and just totally cutting edge, going to Minneapolis, that was a rare breed out there. And Prince was really super freaky compared to, you know, the kids at White Castle or something. So... <laughs> When when he looked at me and wanted me to doll it up and get dressed up, it was sort of like old school. It was, to me. I, yeah, I that's sort of that like, was vintage well, for really, you. Yeah, that's not so cool. <laughs> if you're that, you're like trendy, and you know that wasn't you're cool. You're poser. It's too trendy. Yeah. Well, Des Dickerson leaves the band next. How long was it before uh, Lisa? You were able to bring Wendy in. That was right before. Uh, well, we were recording 1999. Wendy came to Minneapolis, but then when it really clicked. With Prince, I think was the 1999 tour, mm-hmm. where our brothers and sisters and everybody came to meet me in New York, and Wendy was in my hotel room playing guitar, and Prince heard the guitar coming f- from behind the, my door and knocked on the door. He's like, "Who's playing guitar in there?" He thought it was really good, mm. and I said, "Oh, it's it's a Wendy." And he came in and he was like, "Play something," and <laughs> she just like str- it was a, an acoustic guitar, and she just strummed like this huge, beautiful chord that he was just like how do you do that but then the other side of it was then she was at soundcheck the next day where des had been having a some dissension among the ranks yeah he was really (laughs) angry and um he didn't show up to soundcheck and so prince knew wendy played guitar and he said will you check my guitar while i go walk around the the hall and see how it sounds so she he said do you know how to play controversy and i said yeah, sure. Do I 
I'm, I'm much more from a fan perspective. I'll just go back quickly when I was 13 and my twin sister and I used to sneak out of the house and we used to go to a club in Hollywood called the Starwood. I remember we were dancing. I was 13, we were pretending to be 16, 17, still underage, but you know. And Take I ID. heard this song on the dance floor, Soft and Wet. And I ran up to the DJ at the time and I was like, oh my God, who's, who's that girl <laughs> that you're playing? Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, no, that's not a girl. It's just this kid from Minneapolis. His name is Prince. He's 19, blah, blah, blah. And that's where it started for me. Two, when I found out that Lisa got a call to go and try out for this guy, Prince, who she had no idea who it was, and I had already been, like, (laughs) completely versed and flipped out for this guy, and then I go into the Coleman's house, and she has a cassette of the Dirty Mind record and puts on head. I couldn't believe, oh my God, you're playing with Prince. Do you know what you're doing? And then cut to they're playing in all these little clubs in town. Like they played flippers, which is this, uh, like, uh, it was a roller skating rink here in Los Angeles that That doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And then as, you know, time went on, blah, blah, blah. I'm, you know, out of high school. I'm 18. Uh, I fall in love with Lisa at a younger age. We become a couple. And then he asks me to play, do you know how to play Controversy? And I, of course, tried to keep my SH, you know, what yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't. And I, But I did. Yeah. And then, you know, whatever. I went home and she calls me on the phone like a week and a half later and says, I think Prince is calling you. <laughs> and I was like, what? And that was kind of like the beginning of it. And then it was... Shortly thereafter that we started recording the songs to um, Purple Rain. Purple Rain. We'll continue our classic album dissection of Prince's Purple Rain with Wendy and Lisa after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later on, I'll add a track I can't live without to the Desert Island Jukebox. Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. 
Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're in the midst of a classic album dissection of Prince's 30-year-old album, Purple Rain. We've been talking to Wendy Melvoin and Lisa Coleman, members of Prince's band The Revolution at the time. And one of the things that was so unique about the making of Purple Rain was how collaborative Prince was becoming in the studio. Now, in the past, he was sort of doing everything himself in the studio, and then he'd have the band out on stage. But with Purple Rain, all that changed. Prior to the recording, Prince was more of a one-man band, but with Purple Rain, he brought the revolution into the songwriting process and actually gave them songwriting credits on the album. So, Wendy, what was the reality of this for you two? Well, it was a reality for me and Lisa, but it didn't pay the bills. Mm-hmm. How's that? Um, you know, that that was pretty accurate for the most part. There were a couple songs on the on the album, I think, that Prince did do by himself. I think Darling Nikki Darling Nikki was all by himself. Was all him, which you can kind of tell because it's got that fierce, like ridiculously crazy quality. Castles started spinning oh maybe it was my brain I can't tell you what you did to me, but my body will never be the same But other than that, we had, we were always set up in a warehouse, uh, which was the tradition anyway, but we were seriously camped out in a warehouse with some 24-track machines, and we were working out these songs, writing the songs, and we would really write them as a band. It was, we were so tight by that time, and Wendy fit in so well and added such a beautiful color in her guitar playing and her funk abilities. You know, she had the perfect combination of groove and like nice, beautiful chords, which is really indicative of that in that record, Purple Rain, the whole, well, the song itself, the opening chords are Wendy, you know, with her beautiful big chords with like a chorus effect on it. And I remember Joni Mitchell asking her like, um, what is that tuning you're using for those chords? And it was just regular standard tuning. A lot of guitar players ask Wendy, what are those chords? Because they're so thick and beautiful and using like all 11 or 12 strings <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a six string guitar but we would all look at each other and and just kind of know where things would happen bobby would hit the cymbal at just the right time and and you know prince would kind of guide us and like bring it up break it down go let's try going to a g here let's try go you know and we just carved it out and then i think we booked a gig at first avenue and uh videotaped it and recorded that show and I think that's the majority of where the album comes from. 
The basis of those tracks were those live recordings of that First Avenue show. And it's interesting right. because the script for the movie, I guess, was kind of being written as he was recording, right? So that the yep, And the band was right. a big part of the movie. So it was almost like the yep. band was written into Prince's life, and he says, oh, you know, hey, maybe I ought to involve these guys more. So it was a case of, like, art imitating life or life imitating art one way or the other. It seemed like there seemed like some kind of a, a cross-pollination there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's sort of funny because, you know, like how the, what was that guy who used to do the voiceovers for movie trailers and before Prince made the movie, he lived the life. <laughs> and and it was really true. <laughs> and mm. It was kind of how it it all happened kind of at the same time. Prince had had a, an idea to make a movie for a long time, but it was kind of a different movie. It ended up that that movie didn't get made. It, it evolved into this Purple Rain idea. That was the Battle of the Bands. It was like kind of like a West Side Story Mm. kind of inspiration for him with, you know, like I've been abused by my mommy and daddy situation. So it started out as one thing and it ended up kind of being the rock and roll West Side Story. Well, in terms of the musical contributions, I think it's become something of a critical shorthand. Since Prince took such a turn with Purple Rain and, and, and much more toward the new wave, for lack of a better term, side of things. And and since you two were, were new forces relatively in the band, a lot of that's been credited to you. People have said, you know, Prince brought a lot of the new wave rock and roll, synth rock kind of sound into the mm-hmm. into what he was doing because Wendy and Lisa came on board. Do you take credit for that? Um, I think that we were instrumental in um, influencing him and Lisa and I were cinephiles and musicologist freaks and we were from a different city and we were close to him and we came became this triumvirate and he relied on everything musically that he in us that he knew he didn't have and we became a great combination and we were absolutely more than willing to give him what we had well so i'll I'll tell you my take on that because i think the song computer blue does not get written Unless you two are in the group. Wendy? Yes, Lisa. Is the water warm enough? Yes, Lisa. Shall we begin? Yes, Lisa. You had a tremendous amount of influence in that group. I think you're right. I think you're right yeah, about that. Yeah, for sure. I, I, and it's... I mean, that is my guitar line. I mean... Yeah, I mean, and the three part suite and all that stuff. That seems yep. to me like Lisa's classical training right there. Prince didn't have any classical training that I know about. You know, I mean, it's a very ambitious track. Well, and the song is credited uh, to Prince, Wendy, and Lisa, Doctor Fink. You know, there's this songwriting credit yeah, shared. He, he, mm-hmm. did, he did. He did start spreading the the credits around, and you know, and it was really just out of like. You know, we were young and we we were really inspired and we hung out together. You know, we would hang out and play records for each other. And like, have you heard this thing? And have you heard that? And it was, you know. It was fantastic. Those were the days. Yeah, just how it is. Like maybe if you're in your college dorm or something, we were just. We were our college years for sure together. For sure. Just hanging out. Can you remember anything you were listening to when when making Purple Rain? Oh, Lisa and I were listening to. Oh, I remember well, it, it would be things that you wouldn't really necessarily think, you know, had any influence, but they were so 
ambitious themselves. Well, I mean, like we've, symbiosis. The, symbiosis. So like, the Bill you know. Evans record with Klaus Augerman was a big record that we, Lisa and I, mm. were listening to, and we also, you know, turned him on to a lot of Peter Gabriel. We were, you mm. know, Lisa and I were big security people, and all those records, and yeah, not there the, were like, you know, Ricky like, Lee Jones or Ricky of Lee, course, Joni Mitchell, Joni, and. and we would drive around in my car, which had like the biggest, most amazing <laughs> stereo system. system in it. And we would drive around and listen to Vaughn Williams. And he really got turned on to classical music and got into listening to Mahler. Yep. Hmm. And yeah, it was really interesting. Well, you you had this relationship with him on a, a number of levels. Uh, Wendy, I heard a story about you that I think Des might have told it to us, where you were mm-hmm. just the character in, in, in the studio. You know, your ability to sort of loosen him up. Apparently there was an incident where Prince was playing keyboard shirtless and you started pulling his armpit hair while he was playing. And he started saying, stop that, Wendy. And next thing you know, you were kind of having this fake fight with him. And all the other band members were supposedly standing around in awe going like, I can't believe she just did that. And what, yeah, what more? You seem to be enjoying it. <laughs> that's <laughs> def- definite. I used to do it to his chest hairs. It's just, Yes, I did it all the time. I also was the one who used to tell him if he played something that was cheesy to me. I'd say it sounded like porn music, and he wasn't allowed to use it on the record. So, yeah. <laughs> well, this is fascinating, not for the personal angle so much as the fact that Greg and I, as critics, you know, huge Prince fans, but many of the problems uh, of his records in the last 10 or 15 years, we've always gotten the sense that there's nobody around Prince who can come up to him anymore and say, you know, that ain't cutting it. You know, the idea of having Najee play on your record, not cutting it. I, uh, not uh, cutting it. There's yeah. nobody in Prince's camp that can pull right. his chest hair and get away nobody with Nobody can it. do yeah. that. And yet you no, do. Oh, he wouldn't let anybody near unless he was married to you. He's cut so many people out yeah. of his life, professionally and personally, and yet you two, you've always told him straight. Yeah, I mean, that's the, there will always be a connection there, and there will always be a healthy amount of anger for, towards each other and a healthy amount of respect for each other. And um, I just hope that at some point he can um, uh, let us back in naturally. I just don't know. Mm. Prince, call me. <laughs> <laughs> I miss you, honey. Oh, my God. It's a, th- a three-year three year blur for Lisa Coleman and uh, Wendy Melvoin. They live to tell about it. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure having you guys, Wendy and Lisa. Thanks for being on Sound Opinions. Oh, so thank you fun. so much, you guys. Thank you. You're listening to Sound Opinions and our classic album dissection of Prince's 1984 blockbuster, Purple Rain. You know, Greg, in thinking about Purple Rain's influence 30 years on, there's no bigger testament, I think, to its greatness other than the number of groups that have covered music from this record, which range all over the map, from the Chicago punk band Apocalypse Hoboken to the Indie-tronica combo Chairlift, from Mariah Carey to Of Montreal. Um, <laughs> there is so much in that sound that so many different people can take different things and, and you know not even have anything in common. The song I want to play, though, shows the 
that Prince was still dangerous in this period. Now, in a lot of ways, we're not talking much about the movie, in part because I think it's a pretty rotten movie. I, you know, it's a silly movie. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, you see it once and you don't really ever yeah. need to see Purple Rain again. One thing that isn't shown in the movie is that dangerous side of Prince, and yet it's there on Purple Rain. We heard Wendy and Lisa talking a little bit about the song Darling Nikki, which stands out because uh, it is one of the tunes that Prince worked on by himself alone in the studio. I think in that context, the tunes that are Prince solo songs work well with the group songs because they're, you know, it's an album. It's a different flavor in between. This song became notorious when Tipper Gore, wife of the then soon-to-be future Vice President Al Gore, and her parents' music resource council made this public enemy number one, along with a handful of other tunes, led directly to the stickering of albums, uh, you know, parental advisory warning, Mm -hmm. which... So what, right? That's like, buy me instead because I'm a nasty (laughs) record. You know, the thing that people forget is that major chain stores across America would not sell anything that had one of these stickers. In in retrospect, I always thought Darling Nikki was a filthy song. And then I finally actually read the lyrics and like there's there's nothing in them. You know, I mean, compared to an M, an M M&M has more nastiness in one couplet than Prince doesn't have any in this entire song. Yes, it's a song about a groupie who is hot to trot, who wants to jump Prince's bones. I find it not sexist or pandering at all because the woman is in charge throughout and he is basically left as a limp dish towel on the floor (laughs) at the end of this. He doesn't know what hurricane named Nikki hit him. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain amount of self-deprecation. In a lot of ways, it's like John Lennon's song, Norwegian Wood. Mm -hmm. It's about something happened to me last night. This woman ran me over. I feel Mm -hmm. like I got hit by a Mack truck and now I'm going to sing about it. Uh, So in that regard, it's a very sweet song, except there is this dirty, sexy, funky beat. So I'm going to play Don. Nikki. Here it is on Sound Opinions. I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby. I met him with a magazine. She said, how'd you like to waste some time? And I could not resist when I saw little Nikki grind. Yeah. 
Darling Nikki by Prince and the Revolution from Purple Rain. We are in the midst of our uh, Purple Rain classic album dissection. We wrap these up, each of us playing a song from the record. Mr. Cott, what are you going to lay on us? Well, Jim, I'm going to go a little bit more mainstream, a song that actually got played on the radio. <laughs> Darling Nikki, because of some of those objections that Tipper Gore raised, uh, didn't get near any radio stations, but most of the rest of the songs on this record got played a lot on mainstream radio. And one of the biggest hits, of course, was When Doves Cry. Listen to this song again and, and tell me what you hear and tell me that it doesn't sound absolutely contemporary. Like this song could have been released in 2009 and still fit on the commercial radio spectrum today. I think it shows what a brilliant ear Prince had for music and the ch- kind of chances he was willing to take with his music at the time of his greatest commercial success. And I think that's why this album holds up. And what's missing from the song? A bass line. Absolutely. Weird to have this huge dance track without a bass line. It is so amazing to hear that song now and realize the first thing that hits your ear is all the sense of space that's within the song. And he did pull that bass line out of there. When it was originally recorded with the band, the bass was in there. He pulled it out, and everybody said, well, what's missing here? And he says, exactly. That's what this song needed. I think that that adds a sort of a weird vibe to this song and at the same time emphasizes what made this album what and this song in particular so great. It opens with this very intense bit of guitar playing from Prince, and I think that's one of the factors that I think made Purple Rain such a great crossover record, because he not only had those R&B synths in there, but he had that heavy guitar attack. And then he adds a vocal line underneath that guitar that almost sounds like a distorted grunt, a groan of some sort. It's Prince's voice clearly, but it's distorted to the point where it almost sounds like another instrument. Then he adds that drum machine that was such a big part of this song, and finally he comes in with that classic keyboard line over the top. Yet you have this amazing sense of of an almost avant-garde track because it doesn't have that traditional bottom that you associate with a dance single. So when you talk about producers like Prince Paul, the Dust Brothers, Bomb Squad with Public Enemy, DJ Muggs with Cypress Hill, Timbaland, all these producers who in later decades brought a sense of the avant-garde into the pop mainstream, I think they were all referencing what Prince was doing in the early 80s, and in particular on a track like this, which was a huge hit, but at the same time still sounds amazingly fresh and experimental. It's When Doves Cry from Prince from the Purple Rain album on Sound Opinions.
That is Prince with When Doves Cry, wrapping up our classic album dissection of Purple Rain. To make a comment on the air about Purple Rain or anything in the world of rock, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. You can also send us an email at interact.soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook. In just a moment on Sound Opinions from WBEZ and PRX, hold on your eardrums. We're reviewing the latest from Mastodon. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and you're listening to Mastodon, Once More Around the Sun, the name of the song, and the title track from their sixth studio album, Just Out. Uh, Mastodon, one of the most respected and revered metal bands of the last 14, 15 years. They came together in 2000 when drummer Brand Daler and guitarist Bill Kelleher, who had been uh, playing together in Rochester, New York, moved to Atlanta and met guitarist Brett Hines and bassist Troy Sanders. And they hit it off. They had this uh, mutual love of progressive rock and metal, but they also were interested in experimenting. They they loved jazz. They loved avant-garde music. They loved non-mainstream threads of rock music. They said, let's put all this stuff together and create some heavy music together. And they did that. Four concept albums out of the box. I mean, we're talking about astral travel, Greek mythology, Moby Dick. Moby Dick. Hey, guys, let's write albums about this stuff. And they did. So the combination of ambition and the songwriting chops put them on the map with a lot of metal connoisseurs. And uh, with the last two records, I'd say, Jim, uh, The Hunter in 2011 and now Once More Round the Sun, they're making a big mainstream bid for popularity in, in streamlining some of their music. We've got this album number six now, Once More Round the Sun, and here's a track from it called Tread Lightly on Sound Opinions.
That is Mastodon with Tread Lightly from their sixth studio album, Once More Round the Sun. Greg, a lot of rock critics joke that the one album that rock critics who generally are anti-metal like is the latest Mastodon <laughs> release, all right? And and I think there's some truth in that. There's a hipness and an intelligence, and these guys are, are very well-spoken. But I think that they're succeeding because they're a classic metal band. There were four groups early on that drew these guys together. They all admired the Melvins and Neurosis from the hardcore avant noise underground, and they love Black Sabbath and Thin Lizzy. And what Sabbath and Thin Lizzy have at their best are these killer riffs that are just giant, memorable melodies. And that's what Mastodon does very well. So the metal community can resent non-metal fans liking this one band, but I think that they like them because, you know, these are great songs. You could sit and play them on an acoustic guitar. They're even better when they're delivered with this stomping fury. I don't know how much toward the mainstream they're moving. There is an eight-minute epic here called Diamond in the Witch House. So there's still the experimentalism, but there's also the riffs and the melodies. It's a buy-it record as far as I'm concerned. Well, Jim, you know, I'm of two minds on this record, and while in general I remain a a, a Mastodon fan, I do prefer their first four albums to this one. I do appreciate what they're trying to do here. The more concise songs, the big choruses, the guitar interplay is terrific. Reminds me a lot of those very melodic Swedish death metal bands from the 90s, At the Gates, Dark Tranquility, In Flames. I'm not saying that they have been listening to those bands or ripping them off, but it does remind me of that sound. And it's a cool sound. But I do miss the more lengthy tracks, the musical interludes, you know, those sweet-like song structures, you know, the digressions they would have mid-song. The last track on the uh, album is sort of a red herring. It does sort of get into that a little bit. But basically, they're trying to write more concise songs. Three, four minutes, give you the chorus, repeat the chorus, give you a nice little guitar solo, a little more structured, a little more conventional. I'd say this is like a sort of a gateway drug album for them, you know? (laughs) If you want to get introduced to Mastodon, you're really not a huge Mastodon fan or a huge metal fan but want to get to know the band this is a nice introduction to mastodon but i would say once you get a taste of this and like it go back to those first four albums because they're superior so i'm going to give this a try it i think you've been banging your head too hard i tell you little buddy this whole island is bewitched As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we'd like to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox, and play a track we cannot live without. Jim, this week it's your turn. Well, Greg, all that time we spent with Purple Rain and Prince had me thinking of the period that followed right after that, Around the World in a Day, and when he started to go real uh, paisley psychedelic. And there was an interesting collaboration between Prince and the band's on the West Coast that have come to be called the Paisley Underground. The Dream Syndicate, the Rain Parade, Green on Red, the Bangles, and the Three O'Clock, the band I'm going to highlight, all were part of this revival of 60s psychedelic rock sounds in L.A. in the indie rock 80s. 
that Prince took an interest in that is, is fascinating to me. He wrote a song for the Bangles, of course, Manic Monday, and it was a big hit. But the 3 o'clock he actually signed to his Paisley Park Records imprint at Warner Brothers for their last album. And he wrote a song for them, too, called Neon Telephone. I'm going to play the 3 o'clock's best tune, though. What made this band great was the incredible high vocals of Michael Quercio, the band leader, and the great searing guitar that we got from Greg Gutierrez. It was a very melodic band. It was a little light for some people. It was more, you know, the lighter end of 60s psychedelia instead of the heavy stuff that Green on Red or Dream Syndicate pursued. The band name came from a line in the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. If you dropped LSD early in the evening by 3 a.m., 3 o'clock in the morning, you were at the height of your experience, or so it was said. This video caused a little bit of controversy. Her head's revolving. Why was her head revolving? Because she was also tripping somewhere. But it was all very playful, and it, and it wasn't, you know, it was, the druggy imagery was there because it was part and parcel, but it was a trip just to listen to this music. I love this song. It's called Her Head's Revolving by the 3 o'clock on Sound Opinions. o'clock, her head's revolving from the 1985 album Arrive Without Traveling, my Desert Island jukebox pick this week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we're going to unearth some buried treasures, play some tracks that you need to know about underneath the mainstream radar. 
Sound Opinion senior producers are Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana. Our production assistant is Anthony Martinez, and our intern is Sam Taylor. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, Steve Summers from Philadelphia, calling about Lana Del Rey and saying, how can you possibly put down someone for being an actress when so many of our current popular singers are just that Madonna, David Bowie, Lady Gaga, her acting informs her music, her music informs her acting. As such, she comes across as a well thought out persona, maybe also a brand. Musically, it's okay, and some of it actually does connect. So I would change Trash It to give it a listen. Little Rock, Arkansas. Great show. Great fix for uh, best album so far. I want to throw out Bobby Bear Jr.'s Undefeated. It's soft, loud, great melodies, easy to sing along to. Sometimes it's sad or funny at the same time. Hi, Greg. Hi, Jim. This is Pat Logan from New York City. Having just listened to your latest program, I wanted to alert you to yet another transgender singer-songwriter, Stephanie Loveless. She writes very heartfelt songs, and she sings solo and also with a band called the Dirty Virgins. She was kind enough to send me one of her discs when I wrote to her expressing my thanks for all that she revealed in her email list about what it's like to be and to feel as a transgender person. How can there be so much happiness? How can it get any worse? Thank you very much. Have a wonderful holiday weekend. Bye. Hi, uh, Jim and Greg. This is Jan Weller calling from Chicago. As much as I enjoy listening to the show, I often get pretty frustrated with your 
taste in music, and your show on the best albums of the year brought things sort of to a head for me. It seemed like everything that you chose was very basic and, in my opinion, pretty boring. It's like you don't like anything with any subtlety or complexity. Just one example is the fact that you've totally ignored, at the time of its release and in this list, uh, St. Vincent's recent release, which is a gorgeous album, has one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard called Prince Johnny, and it's filled with all kinds of sparkling and inventive tunes. wish you would pay a little more attention to things like that. Anyway, thanks for the show. I enjoy it despite everything. And keep it up. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.